Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the New York City-focused investment real estate podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. I'm your host, Bill Widener, and did I just say New York City-focused? Yes, I did. And as I revealed in the last episode, Realty Speak is now dedicated to sharing stories and strategies that impact the investment property owners of the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. Today, Inauguration Day 2021, we are with Nativ Wynarski, Jim Marino, and Lisa Faham Selzer in the pandemic-friendly conference room at the law offices of Cooker, Marino, Wynarski, and Bitten for the unanticipated sequel to episode 27 from March of 2020, when Nativ and Jim were my guests and we had a lively and informative conversation around the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019 and the negative consequences on housing during the first nine months it was in effect. Little did we know that a week later in March, the pandemic shutdown would open the floodgates of additional policies that exacerbate the situation, including the one we will address today, a moratorium on evictions, and how these policies erode the ability of property owners to provide good housing to those who live in New York City. Nativ, you've been with the firm for 24 years, and Jim, you've been with the firm for 33 years, and Lisa, you're a partner with the firm for just a little under two years. Nativ and Jim, you are sought-after speakers at real estate industry events and frequent contributors to law journals and news publications on the topic of housing law. And Lisa, you specialize in housing court, representing mostly landlords in landlord-tenant disputes. And as a very special bonus for the first time on Realty Speak, we have a co-host, Joanna Wong. You may recall that Joanna was a guest on episode 30 from June 2020. She is a property owner and property manager, serves on the board of Spony.org, Small Property Owners of New York. And since the beginning of the COVID pandemic, Joanna has organized 70 plus interactive Zoom meetings with state legislators and city council members so that other property owners have an outlet to share their stories and knowledge to directly shape housing policy. I'm sure her boots on the ground perspective and thoughtful questions to our esteemed guests will have our listeners on the edge of their seats. Joanna, thanks for co-hosting and Ativ, Lisa and Jim, thank you for being here to share your knowledge and insights today. Great to be here, Bill. 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 We have a lot to unpack today, but before we get started, Joanna, share a little bit about what Spony is and how they are helping investment property owners. Spony is a grassroots organization of small property owners across uh, New York State. Most of our members are based out of New York City, but we do have members in upstate. And really, we're just trying to give a voice to the small property owners, you know, because we often feel that we have no voice. You certainly have given them a voice with these 70 plus interactive Zoom meetings, uh, many of which I have been on. And it's great because everybody can just get on the Zoom with the city council member or the state senator or the state assembly member 
and actually have a conversation with them and talk about what it is that they're dealing with, especially now during COVID. And you were doing this actually before COVID. Right before COVID. And then COVID took over. And we're going to talk more about that. If people want to know more about Spony and they want to join, how, how, what do they do? Where do they go? Sure. They could um, visit our website at www.spony.org. So that's uh, S-P-O-N-Y.org. All right, great. And uh, and they could join there as well, right? Yeah. I just may add something. Um, it's super important that the landlord's voices be heard. And congratulate Joanna on all of her efforts, which are really important. And I think what you've been seeing recently, especially in the press, is that the, the small landlords voices and their their issues that they're having and their problems, they are finally being voiced and heard and listened to. And I think that's a no small part to your um, organization's efforts because otherwise all the noise just comes from the other side and there needs to be another narrative added to the story because there are multiple narratives. And so I think your work is extremely important and I thank you for all of your efforts. Yeah, and I second that, Nativ. Definitely, definitely. Thank you, Joanna. I mean, I just want to add that, I mean, really, the the meetings, I wouldn't be able to have them without all the members that participate. Um, so, you know, I help, I help organize them, but it really, it's all the members that continue um, participating after 10 months, you know, so that's really important, too. The members are definitely uh, dedicated and they're on those Zoom meetings and they take the time out of their days and evenings. And uh, they also have access to a lot of other uh, forums that go on, uh, especially now that we're in election year for the mayor and a lot of city council people. It's more important than ever to be involved. So get on Spony.org, join, be part of the solution. You just can't complain about the problem. You got to be part of the solution. So like I said before, we got a lot to unpack, and I don't even know where to start, but I'm just going to ask this question. When things are normal, quote unquote, what is the process for recovering property and or unpaid lease obligations? Who wants to sh share that? Well, you would bring what a summary proceeding called a non-payment. You would serve what's called a five-day default letter. Um, you'd send it by certified mail. Uh, the next that's five days after the rent is due. Um, the next day you can serve a rent demand. It's a fourteen day rent demand, and if your money is not paid, then you can start a summary proceeding called a non payment. Um, usually those go into court within ten days after they're served, and you get a court date. And I would say after like two or three court dates, they're usually resolved. Um, and you either get money or you get possession. How, how long do those court dates take? I would say you get it within starting the case to getting a court date usually is around six weeks now. And, and then, then and then get, and then you you said court dates, so I'd imagine there's several dates, right? Yeah, there. and then you would get an usually there's an adjournment, then you would get another date, and normally they're resolved within two or three months. Is usually resolved with a stipulation or they're set down for trial. Right. Okay. And we should just add this is well pre COVID. Pre COVID. Yeah, and that and that and that's what I wanted the listeners to understand, right? That that pre COVID this is what happens. And I understand that it can take longer too sometimes. Right? Yeah, I mean if there's defenses or if tenants don't have a means to pay or they can't get what's called a one shot or can't get assistance, you know, or they don't want to settle, then it drags on and it takes longer. But I would say a run-of-the-mill non-payment is three months tops. 
And then when that happens, uh, what what does the landlord get at that point? Do they they have a judgment? Uh, are they able to remove the person uh, via an eviction uh, during normal times? What typically happens? So normally you would do a stipulation um, with a final judgment, meaning if the tenant doesn't pay the rent or doesn't get the monies to pay the rent, you'd be able to evict them once the the time is up for them to pay. And generally, I think the number of evictions or the percent, rather the percentage of evictions is probably only about maybe f- 5%. There's a very low percentage of evictions because normally when a, a warrant is served, if the monies aren't paid, you can serve a warrant and the tenants run back to court and they do an order to show cause to stay the eviction and they get more time and eventually they get the monies together and evictions rarely happen on non-pays. But the process is such that ultimately... Landlords should be getting paid the money's due or a large percentage of the money's due. And tenants get either their one-shot deal and if there are any conditions that are an issue, they get those issues repaired. So while it certainly was not in any way a perfect system, it was a system that that generally served the interest of both parties. So my co-host looks curious. You have some questions? I myself don't go through non-payment cases too much. I usually try to work it out as best I can to avoid court altogether. But the I did have one case pre-COVID, and I think that case was um, existing for since 2018. So when when you said like three months, I'm like three months. <laughs> but that would be like a standard run of the mill without any overcharges or anything like that. Just a standard non-payment. I mean, there are certainly cases which go on for years and years and could end up costing the the parties and specifically the landlord tens, sometimes even hundreds of thousands of dollars, but those are generally the anomaly. So it sounds to me like, based on what you said, Lisa, uh, and Nativ and Joanna, that the eviction proceeding stimulates some kind of settlement. It stimulates payment, it stimulates repairs, it just gets the process moving for both sides. And so now when you have a moratorium on all that, all of that ceases. So you're not getting payment. You're not getting the uh, conditions abated as much. And really it works to the detriment of everyone. So now we enter COVID and we make this transition into something that nobody even would have. I mean, has there ever been an eviction moratorium ever? Not that I can recall in my 25. The only moratoriums are the annual ones uh, that come in around mid-December and last into the first week in January. That's sort of as a courtesy for based upon the time of year. No evictions will take place during that period of time. But we've never had an extended period of time like, like this one. What does an eviction moratorium mean? Is it specific to where you are in the process of housing court? Uh, is it specific to the state, you know, where you are? Um, what can you do? What can you not do? Are you just banned from doing anything at all? Well, there are many different manifestations of this moratorium. Um, it started in March of 2020 and looks like it may be extended until possibly September 30th, um, um, according to Biden's last bill. Uh, but as it presently um, manifests itself, you can we cannot do anything at this point, at least until uh, the end of February. That means everything is stayed. There are no settlement conferences. 
no commencement of proceedings. Court is essentially not functioning until the end of February. Uh, landlords, if we get a non-payment, we still have to send a five-day uh, non no, you know, payment not received notice. Like we still have to do that. Right? You should be sending it, but you need to send it with the hardship de- declaration. Okay. Actually, and so that was another question I had that I was hearing different things about whether the hardship declara- declaration had to be attached to the five day notice. It must be attached. It must. Okay. Yes. Along with um, a list of nonprofit attorneys and. And you also need to send it in the tenant's primary language. So the court posted, I think, five languages. You must send it in English and Spanish. And um, the court posted five languages. But if the court didn't post your tenant's language, you've got to get it translated. Yourself. Yeah. Can you be held liable if the translation is not? So the so the bill the law says that you need to provide it in the tenant's language but it doesn't say what the punishment will be if you don't so i can't tell you what the consequences would be but it it says that it must be sent in the tenant's primary language i also noticed in the hardship forms that there's a traditional chinese version and a simplified chinese version i do have chinese um tenants so i guess if i had to p- send a 5 day notice i would probably end up sending both Yes, send both. That's the recommendations. Yeah, too much is enough. All right. So listeners, I'm sure your heads are spinning by now. Mine is definitely spinning, right? Because you've got this uh, eviction moratorium that shows up in March of 2020, 10 months ago, almost a year ago. It's had several different iterations. It's been extended. There were actually cases going on during the summer. Is that correct? That's correct. And then, so if any of those got settled, uh, well, well, I guess settled is really not the right word. If any of those got a judgment for money uh, that the tenant was not going to pay and you wanted to then go and exercise the eviction, you still wouldn't have been able to do that, right? So the only cases that were being heard during the summer were cases that were filed pre-COVID. Um, once the initial eviction moratorium ended, I think it was in August, we were allowed to file new cases, but none of them had been heard yet. So any judgments that were entered, and I would bet a lot of money, the very few judgments were actually entered, new judgments, um, were from pre-COVID cases. And there's a lot of different ways that you can initiate these cases, right? Like I was looking at some of the legal terminology, summary proceeding, non-payment, holdover, eviction, possessory action, plenary action, judgment, petition. Could you could you simplify some of that for us? Uh, I mean is is some of it redundant or is it all is it all the same thing? Uh do you use different things for different types of actions? There there uh there's there sets and subsets. The main set is a summary proceeding. That's what we're talking about in housing court. And what does that mean? Summary proceeding is a, is a special type of proceeding. It's designed to go fast. Summary basically means, you know, we're doing it all, you know, as soon as possible. There's no discovery to bog down the case. They're particularly brought in housing court. As compared with Supreme Court, where it takes a lot longer. There's discovery. There's a process. There's a, many calendar calls and so forth. Summary proceedings are designed to get the landlord a judgment uh, sooner rather than later. Um, the subsets are non-payments and holdovers. Those are both summary proceedings. Non-payment, you're seeking the rent. Holdover, you're alleging that the tenant's doing something in violation of the lease. Both cases are known as eviction cases. 
the eviction is not necessarily something that the landlord wants in a non-payment case. They may want it more in a holdover because the tenant's alleged to do something wrong. But the eviction in both types of cases is the hammer. It's the enforcement mechanism. The real underlying proceedings, particularly in the real underlying issues, particularly in a non-payment case, is to get the money. So the risk of losing the home is the incentive for doing something to uh, correct whatever the problem is. Correct. As someone who self-manages, if you can't resolve the issue yourself, then often you use the housing court as a last resort to just get it going. You know, um, like I've been hearing from a lot of small property owners right now. Um, you know, I naturally hear a lot of stories and they've and people tell me that their tenants just don't respond to them at all. They don't talk. They don't respond to phone calls, texts, emails, and they just have no clue what's going on with their tenant. And I and pre-COVID, you know, housing court would be a way to at least get that conversation started. But now it sounds like you can't even start anything. So actually, I had a follow-up question on something Natif said earlier. He said that currently you can't start anything. And then I asked, well, should I still send a five-day, which Lisa said, yes, you should still send the five-day. Um, what about the 14-day? Do you still send the 14-day or that's where the process is stayed? You can still serve the 14-day rent demand. And there are some sources that say that you can file the petitions after 129. And you can serve them, but the but the housing court's not going to do anything with them. But it's it's not the law is not clear on it. Okay, so we are serving the fourteen day rent demands, but we're holding off on petitions for now. If I can just add something, Professor Marino gave an excellent analysis and explanation of the various types of proceedings and the subsets and the, the, the different type of mechanisms one can employ uh, within house housing court. Man on the street, native, is here to tell you that all of that has gone by the wayside. And effectively, you said uh, that when you have a discussion with uh, your tenant or when you have rather a dispute with your tenant, what you try to do, and I think it's the correct uh, method, uh, the correct approach, is to first approach the tenant and see if you can work it out absent going to housing court, which you labeled as a last resort. I think given the the current circumstances, the housing court is no longer resort at all. Um, and I, so what we have been doing here is we've been advising our clients to, to the, that we should be commencing cases in either Supreme Court or in civil court because those courts are still open and those courts are hearing cases. And so, uh, whereas you can, for example, on even on a, let's say, commercial holdover cases, mm-hmm. right? The moratorium, as it's, pre- as it's presently embodied, um, includes all residential cases. And as, as it relates to commercial cases, the commercial non-payments are also presently stayed until January 31st. Technically, um, commercial holdover cases can be presently commenced, but nothing is happening with them. Um, Elisa was telling me today that the commercial cases that she's been commencing, there's been absolutely no movement at all. And this is in regards to cases which you can commence. Forget the cases that you can't commence. So clearly, I think it is uh, it behooves landlords um, to to the, that if they are going to commence actions during this time, mm-hmm. it be done through a plenary action. 
And I certainly advise landlords to do it, especially now. And the reason I say that is because although everyone is under financial strain right now, and so you would say, Nativ, really, should I be commencing legal actions when it's going to cost me money and I'm going to incur legal expenses? The word on the street, if you will, Mm -hmm. is that tenants are relieved of their obligation to pay rent. That's what people have. That's the general understanding. And with that understanding, people are going to take advantage of that. And the only way you are going to disabuse people of that notion is when you not only serve that predicate notice, but when you file the action. Even if it's only for a money judgment, Mm -hmm. you still file the action and now the tenant says, oh, there are repercussions if I don't pay the rent. It was my understanding, seeing all the news, seeing everything on social media, that I, I didn't have to pay rent. And this notice, this action, is telling me that that, in fact, is not the case. So now let me call Joanna and say, hey, Joanna, let me see if I can work this out with you. Because before that, they would be disinclined to do anything of that nature because it's their understanding they don't have any obligation to pay rent. And in fact, our firm, uh, what we've done as well, is recognizing the hardship that landlords are facing. We've implemented certain programs here to help the landlords, which is we take certain minimal upfront costs on these cases and then be willing to do them on certain contingencies. And the reason for that is, number one, it helps the landlords, then saves them on, on their out-of-pocket expenses. And number two, this isn't the usual case where you get a judgment for a a tenant who's no longer in possession and now you have to chase that tenant and the odds of recovering that money are are generally, it's rather difficult. These are tenants who remain in possession and so you know where they are. Mm -hmm. And so you know if you need to serve certain notices on them, deposition notices or whatever to recover um, that money judgment, you're able to do that and the tenants are aware of that. And that's why... It's worthwhile to serve these, to commence these cases, and this way it fosters what we try to, what we, what the conversation that we started with was to get the process going so that landlords can recover their money, tenants can get their rents, and all the while the cases are moving with minimal cost to the landlords. There are a lot of different kinds of courts, right? So what court does that happen in? Either in supreme or civil, depending upon the monetary amount. And Supreme Court for cases that are over 25000 Why would you go to civil? If the claim is less than 25000 Oh, and then small claims? 10000 So if a, if a tenant owed me $5,000, I'd go to small claims? Small claims is currently closed, I think, until September. Oh, okay. So I'd either go to civil or Supreme, which are open. Correct. What if you have $9,999 in arrears? Can, can you go to civil court? Well, the interesting thing is when you go to civil, you can add in the late fees and the legal fees and things like that. You don't only have to go for straight rent. What's the difference between going to housing court and taking this um, other route? Is there a difference in terms of how you litigate or what the process is? Or is it more expensive? Is it more, you know, I don't know. So generally, um, again, depending upon whether it's civil or Supreme Court, it's generally a, a lengthier time than the than the time period which Lisa previously described as being typical three months. However, uh, Joanna, as you well know, the the goal here is not to evict anyone. The goal here is to ultimately get the landlord money 
and help the tenant get get that money to the landlord. Now, if you start the case where there's a threat of a money judgment, it also makes it easier for the tenant to seek governmental assistance. Because if absent a case, the government, you know, if the, if the government has two cases, one where a case has been commenced and the tenant is being threatened with a money judgment and one where nothing has happened, funds are first going to be allocated towards the towards the one where there's an there's a proceeding that has been commenced. And so you you get that benefit and you get things in motion. And also if you're participating in our program again, if it's on a contingency, then there's very little cost to the landlord and and the and the hopefully the landlord should ultimately be recovering that money from that in in possession tenant who now realizes that if I don't pay, a money judgment will be entered against me and that money judgment is good for 20 years. Now, TV, you had talked before about the news and how a lot of tenants feel f- that for some reason they're not obligated to pay the rent. And I just want to reiterate that that is not the case. You are still obligated to pay the rent. There's just an eviction moratorium. At some point, you're going to have to pay the money or go to a court case and have a judgment against you to pay the money. And that's going to have a tremendously negative effect on your credit. And uh, there, there, I guess there are different ways to collect a judgment. Well, number one, you're 100% correct. It's a moratorium. That means it's just a stay of the obligation. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, obliterate that obligation. Or, uh, well, well I, mean, I mean, the obligation is the first of every month. That's correct. Right. The, 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 stay, the stay is the action taken against you, right? Correct. Right. Right. Um, and so all, all that it means is that there are these arrears being built up. And ultimately, once this moratorium is over, I think you're going to see this, you know, you're, you're going to see a tremendous number of uh, co- proceedings commenced. And I think it's, it's, it, it, it's a disservice to both landlords and tenant. It's a disservice to landlords because they're not able to collect rent during this time where real estate taxes still remain due. And it's a disservice to tenant because ultimately, you know, whether it's March or September or whenever this moratorium ends, and if it's in a year and a half of rental arrears uh, that, that accumulated, it's going to be rather difficult for these tenants to get these monies. And then it becomes a disservice to the government who's going to have to back them and try to fund these monies because otherwise no one no one wants to see an av- avalanche of evictions because that serves no one's purpose. It doesn't serve the landlord's purpose in an environment in which the vacancy rates now are over 5%. And it doesn't serve the tenant's interest. And it's from, you know, it seems to me that this is all very politically short-sighted and uh, you know not looking at it from a very short-term perspective instead of looking at it from a long-term perspective and how it could really serve the entire citizenship as opposed to uh, looking to put all of the burden on a certain sector of the citizenship. Well, what I find unbelievable is that the uh, is that there's been no relief really for the property owner, right? So, so there's a moratorium on evictions and a lot of people can't pay the rent. So they're not paying the rent. That's understandable. There are people that are taking advantage of this because they think that somehow they are relieved of this obligation to pay for where it is that they live. Uh, yet, uh, 
property owners are still having to pay, like you said, the real estate taxes, the water, the sewer, all their expenses, maintenance on the building, increased maintenance on the building because of COVID. And, you know, eventually when that well runs dry, what happens to the housing? Uh, the So actually just yesterday, I believe, the tentative um you know, property taxes, the assessments came out and, you know, I checked my my own and for sure it went up, you know, even though um, vacancies are up, you know, you said 5%. Um, I'm in lower Manhattan. I find that, and a lot of the other small property owners in my neighborhood, I, I find that a lot of us are experiencing as high as 20%, 25%, um, you know, rents are down. So, um, in the assessment, it recognizes that um, market values have gone down, but because of the way it's phased in over five years, the net number um, is it has still gone up. For me, it's still gone up 7% compared to last year. So your assessment went up 7%. My, the, the, the value of my property went down, but the actual dollars that I will probably have to pay has gone up 7%. And that's indicative of other clients that I've spoken to as well. They've all, most of the clients I've spoken to have spoken, have told me that their real estate taxes have in fact gone up while their values have gone down. So I think a really good metaphor for this is imagine two railroad tracks next to each other, right? And one railroad track is relief for people that uh, can't pay their rent or choose not to pay their rent. And the other is uh, and relief by just not having to pay it. And the other railroad track is the property owners. And the train on the on the left track, the first track, is just moving along and there's no parallel solution for the other train track. The other train track, the, the train is just sitting there or it's, it's moving along very, very slowly. Or well, it's off the tracks. Or it's off the <laughs> track, right. I don't understand why when... There was a an eviction moratorium. There wasn't also immediately a reasonable approach to providing the shortfall to the property owners. Well, call me a conspiracy theorist, but um, there are certain segments of the government that want the buildings, so they wouldn't mind seeing landlords default. You can see that there's been legislation proposed. I saw it in an email from Chip. Another landlords organization where the city wants right of first refusal on buildings uh, with three units or more when you put them up for sale you got to let the city know that's up for sale you also have to supply certain financial and residential information about the building to the city so that the city can decide what they want to come in and buy it so it's a it's a first step towards the government running more housing in the city which is which is what they want and that's really worked out well right because all we see in the news all the time is how um, all these apartments and buildings that are managed by nature are in terrible condition and just in furtherance of what jim said just yesterday i saw a proposed bill uh, joanne you may have saw it as well where they said not only does the city get right of first refusal but the proposed bill is that non-profits uh, should be first in line to uh, to purchase these buildings. So we'll have the options of either having the government run the buildings or nonprofits run the buildings. And I guess capitalism is dead. Yeah, there was a hearing yesterday, I believe, by city council. So we'll see what happens. But but even during COVID, even the nonprofits are not for cancel rent 
I, I was reading an article, I think it was in the city. It was an opinion piece and they were saying why New York City needs to cancel rent. And then there was a comment and the comment was from, I guess, someone who runs a nonprofit who said, you know, I'm surprised my name was on this. You know, even though I do advocate for uh, tenants, I do not advocate for cancel rent because it sets the wrong tone, which goes back to what Nativ was saying before about this misconception that people don't have to pay rent. So, you know, this last 10 months, we're wasting all this time talking about cancel rent, you know, and not really trying to find real solutions. Um, and it's just, it's just, it's not solving the problem. People are just kind of kicking the can down the road. And I think people are just assuming that they'll be safe nothing's going to happen or they're just hoping that maybe rent will get canceled and and they just skipped out on rent there are a subset of tenants who have actually been impacted and do need help and i i, I like to make that distinction often because because there are some people who truly do need help but there are some people where these laws that have passed are just so extreme and so imbalanced that it's created so many loopholes for people who are financially capable of paying rent. But now, because there's no accountability and no short-term consequences, they're like, hey, let me just not pay and let me see what happens. And hopefully they're saving that rent they're not paying for when this eviction moratorium finally ends. And I think it's important that the burden not be placed on any one particular group, right? So right now, I think mu much of the burden is on landlords. Small, large, it doesn't make a difference. Then I think, Bill, you mentioned that, you know, what type of relief should these landlords be getting? So some have suggested, oh, there should be a moratorium on mortgage payments. Well, that then just shifts the burdens to the banks, right? And then if you say, well, then we shouldn't pay real estate taxes. So then there's a shortfall in the city and there are no services provided, which is why I think that the government, uh, specifically the federal government, in terms of its rent relief program, that is something that can serve everyone's interest, right? So if, if, if money is doled out from the federal government, and the last figure I believe is $1.3 if if that money gets to the landlords on behalf of the tenant, well, then really no one should be suffering. Now, I don't know whether $1.3 billion is going to be enough. The last survey, I think, uh, was that 20% of 20% uh, of tenants aren't paying the rent, and I think that far exceeds $1.3 billion. But number one, it's a start. But the only issue there, and Jim can speak to this further, is that in the last manifestation of this, uh, which was a smaller program, I think only a certain small percentage of the money that was actually allocated was was actually dispersed. But Jim can speak y yes, to that. Yes, yes. Well, first, with regard to the amount of rent that's estimated to be owed, I believe that the estimate is $2.2 billion through the end of December. That was based upon the CHIP monthly rent surveys. And that's New York? That's New York City. So uh, New York State has been afforded one approximately 1.2 1.3 billion in the last round of of relief uh stimulus relief from the federal government with uh, the next round presumably having uh more than that so already the number's short unless more is 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 forthcoming the problem is that the template hasn't been divulged yet um we don't know what the criteria is going to be but if you look back at New York state's last attempt which is the one that Nativ alluded to, that was a $100 million program. They only dispersed $40 million. The reason why they only dispersed $40 million, putting aside 
publication issues. It wasn't very well publicized, although landlord groups were getting the word out and creating memos uh, and posters uh, for landlords to put up in the building so the tenants could become aware of it and in the hopes that one of their own tenants would become eligible for it and be able to pay rent that's owed. Um, the problem, if you look at the criteria, is that it was very, very restrictive, which is understandable, but obviously it failed <laughs> to deliver on the on the disbursement of $100 million. So they reissued the um, the program um, as of uh, three weeks ago, um, and it's still in effect. They're hoping to get rid of the other $60 million. But they've kept the same criteria, except they've relieved, they've uh, eliminated one of them, which is you don't have to show that you were rent burdened before COVID. Um, that seemed to be a real sticking point. Rent burden means that you pay uh, 30% or more of your income towards your rent. So they eliminated that, but they kept the rent burden requirement within the period of COVID itself. And you also have to show a few other things. Uh, you lost income. Uh, during the COVID period. Again, we're only, we're talking about a specific subset of tenants and it, that, that criteria is clearly not working, but it's a political animal made for, for political purposes. They don't want, apparently they're reluctant to have this money become available um, for people who are, are of higher income. But that's where a lot of the rent is owed at this point in time. You're, you're seeing it from higher income people or supposedly higher income people who either lost their jobs or maybe didn't lose their jobs. They don't want the money to go to those people, even though it's all needed by the landlords. Landlords don't necessarily care who owes the money. Um, they just know that they're owed the money and they need the money to pay the city and to pay the banks. And that has to continue in the pipeline. So the policymakers have to understand that and ease up on the criteria in order to get the money flowing. They'll, they'll never be able to disperse $1.3 billion if they keep the criteria the way it is now. They have to change it. I think that's the goal, hopefully, for the next round. Yeah. Also, there are other funds available. There's funds in one shot. There's charities that, you know, the legal aid organizations can get for the tenants. But there's no incentive now for tenants to apply for these funds or to try to get them because there's no court cases looming over their heads. There's nothing hanging over them to force them to go get help to get pay rent because they can just live and live their rent free for the moment. So with the one shots, um, like for that one case that I have, I asked my tenant, hey, do you want to apply for the one shot? And I said, I can help you apply. Um, and you know, he said he doesn't have email. I said, I can help you set up an email. I can just, I can help you do everything basically. Um, and he just, you know, for whatever reason, maybe it's doesn't trust me. Maybe he doesn't want to give me personal documents. I'm not sure, but he, he didn't want to do it. As a property owner, I see that as one of the issues is that the HCR rent relief program, the one shots, if the landlord could apply for them or, you know, somehow, you know, validate that this is a legitimate rental arrears, but somehow apply for the tenant that would help relieve some of the the bottleneck or the buildup. And just to go to what Nativ said about commencing Supreme Court actions, I mean, it just gives the tenants a little bit of pressure, not necessarily to evict them, but for example, in December, I served about ten different Supreme Court actions for commercial tenants for money's due for money's owed, and. Today, I just settled, I think, the sixth out of 10 within a month. 
I mean, that's a good number. We got the landlord paid. We gave the tenant a little bit of a break. And these cases are settling. They're moving along. And I mean, it's only been a month. So once there's just a little bit of pressure on tenants, they'll come up with some money or they'll come to you and ask for a payment plan or something along those lines. And that was the plenary action? These are plenaries for yeah. co- in specific for commercial tenants. Right. And you know what? I'm glad you brought up commercial because I just want the listeners to understand that most of what we've been talking about is really applicable to residential, right? Commercial a little bit different? It's really both. It's 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 applicable to both residential and commercial. The moratoriums right now are uh, exist as to all residential cases and commercial non-payments. And a commercial non-payment, if there's a clause in the lease that says that the individual is personally responsible, right, which is typical in a commercial lease. And then I guess the city council passed a local law that that clause cannot be enforced. Is the plenary action still going to provide incentive for a commercial tenant? It still does. And the reason is because you can, uh, what we generally do is we commence the Supreme Court action against both the corporate entity and the personal guarantor, which you can only do in Supreme. You can't commence a case against the guarantor in the summary proceedings. And that's another reason it started in Supreme. And the the city council bill that you speak of, apart from the fact that it's not as expansive as many people believe it to be, it is still expires as of now in March 31st. And so if you have a lease for 10 years, and so, you know, it may be the case right now that the landlord is unable to uh, uh, get a, a judgment as against the individual uh, for the time period from March 2020 until March 2021. If the t- if the person doesn't come to the table and engage in discussions with landlords, and the landlord is compelled to go forward on that case, they will be suing for everything remaining on the balance of that lease past March 31st. Uh, so, the, and so the reason that Lisa has been having and the firm has been having the success that it has with these Supreme Court actions is people generally realize that. And so I don't know if I would necessarily use the word pressure because pressure has this negative connotation, but when you commence these cases, it's an impetus for everyone to commence the discussion and engage in the discussion and seek to resolve the dispute. Incentivizes. It brings people to the table yes. to talk. Yes. Yeah, and if you, if you talk about Joanna's one-shot deal case that she just described where she wanted to help the tenant, uh, if, if a case like this came against that tenant, then maybe they would have a little more incentive to accept your assistance. Yeah. Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans, to take a moment to share with you that I love that you choose to listen and learn from Realty Speak. We go deep with so many topics on the show. The result? You get plenty of great information and strategies you can use. And what I learned from my guests as the creator and host of Realty Speak translates to me being the best I can be as a trusted advisor, consultant, and real estate broker. Remember, every transaction is different, and so are you, the people involved. A successful outcome will depend on execution of proper planning, and I welcome the opportunity to listen closely to your desired outcome and then carefully guide you through the process to ultimately achieve your goals. So, if you're contemplating a purchase into your portfolio or a sale out of your portfolio of a building or development site, or you would like to refinance, get a purchase mortgage or construction loan on investment real estate, then feel free to reach out to me. 
I can help you no matter where you're located. Happy to chat. No transaction required. Call me. The number, 917-232-8529. And all my contact info is on the contact page of my website, BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. What else can I say? Real estate is in my DNA. And now back to the show. Joanna, what you you brought up a very very good point, and and that is is that the the burden of putting together all the paperwork and you know uh, and applying for this relief is on the tenant, and the landlord is reliant on the tenant being motivated to do that, and if they're dealing with a lot of life issues right now because we're in the middle of a pandemic and they can't pay their rent and they lost their job, they're probably not in the frame of mind where they want to deal with very, very complicated applications to get relief in an environment where they don't even believe that they need relief. And that is probably one of the major dysfunctions of this whole system. And uh, like we've all said today, you definitely want to bake into the new money that's going to come available, the ability for the landlord to actually represent the tenant and get the relief that's needed for the tenant so the landlord could be made whole, not only for past rent, but for any future rent that's not paid. I have a clarifying question. The plenary action, that is still moving forward now. Or that's not, I thought earlier you said it was um, stalled or is it not stalled? No, the plenary actions are moving forward because you're only seeking monies. You're not seeking possession. Okay. The new moratorium is only for proceedings that seek possession, which actually actually includes Supreme Court ejectment actions, but not actions based solely on money. Got it. Which is a plenary. So this is a a route that's um, available to landlords who just want to resolve the rental arrears. But if if it's a different case, like a nuisance case, or they don't feel comfortable living there, you know, like the the tenant lives in the same two family with them and they they really just don't want that person there because they don't feel safe, like that that course wouldn't be an option for the landlord. No, but really uh, strong nuisance cases are not restricted. Those cases are going forward. Oh, are they? Okay. Only really strong nuisance cases. There's a lot of small property owners that I know that have a holdover case or whatever case, and it might be for non-payment. But then they also have a nuisance case, but they never started a nuisance mm-hmm. case because it's known to be very difficult to follow through on. Generally very difficult to prove. But now they're like, okay, this is now I want to start a nuisance case. So how does that work? Can they have two cases running in parallel? Um, and if they were to start a nuisance case, is there any sense as to how hard it is to... Um, you know, win that and how quickly it would go? So a nuisance case starts with a notice to cure. You send a notice to the tenant. This is your bad behavior. You have X amount of days based on the lease or if it's a rent-stabilized apartment, you have 10 days to cure. It has to be strong, bad conduct, meaning it can't just be that somebody is making a little bit too much noise. It has to be something egregious. 
constant, right? Like perpetual. Yes, and persistent. And your notice has to be detailed. It has to be a real detailed notice with dates and times of occurrence. And it can't just be, you have been behaving badly, stop. Ideally, you really need other tenants in support of your case. There's exceptions to this, obviously, but you really need other tenants in support of your case. And if if those other tenants don't provide an affidavit because they're scared themselves. Affidavits are good for the initial portion of the case, but they need to be prepared to testify as witnesses in a trial. The courts are tired of seeing the landlord alleging and trying to prove. Now, again, there are exceptions to every rule. I mean, that one case you mentioned about the two-family dwelling and the landlord is going to be the only witness in that case. Unless they have film, you know, video of tenant destroying things or tape recordings of the tenant threatening uh, over the phone uh, or, or bad malicious emails, uh, things of that nature. It, it's really supposed to be uh, the, the other, the innocent parties, the tenants who are are feeling the, the the effects of the nuisance. So if it's an apartment building and the other tenant, they don't want to get involved, even though it is infringing on their own quality of life, they just don't want to get involved. They'd rather move. Then the landlord really has no case. You can start the case. You can get it into court. And you can hope that once you get into court, you settle it with a probationary step before it goes to trial. Because if you don't have witnesses, in all likelihood, you're not going to win your trial. And my question before, so if you have a non-payment case, an existing non-payment case, but now you want to start a nuisance case, can you have both going on at the same time? Yes. So once you serve the notice to cure, if the tenant doesn't cure, you serve what's called a termination notice. That terminates the tenancy. Up until the point of of you terminate the tenancy, you can collect rent. After that, you can't collect rent anymore. Got it. So your non-payment would only go up to that point. Right. You can have the holdover. You can commence the holdover subsequent to the non-payment. You can commence the non-payment subsequent to the holdover. And do is is there any thoughts on how fast that would go in court? Now that I guess in theory, no no court no cases are being seen. Nuisance cases don't move fast. I have a nuisance case that. I just got had heard in December before the moratorium and before, you know, court essentially closed down. It has a 2016 index number. They move slowly. Okay. They're the only cases allowed right now. So you, there may be a small window of opportunity to move some of them along. But when things get back to what we consider to be normal now, they'll just probably be glacially moving again. And no one really knows right now. I mean, I guess if someone wanted to find out, they would just have to do it and see, right? Like right now, like today, right? We're uncharted waters at this point. So, I mean, there may be some magical captain out there that knows, you know, yeah. <laughs> what's going on, but, but he or she's not, not telling us yet. Okay. So I want to clarify uh, some of the terminology that we talked about today. We, we've mentioned HCR, which is Homes and Community Renewal, and that's a state agency. Is that correct? Yes, that's the formerly known as DHCR. That's the rent agency that governs rent stabilization and rent control and is administering the current $100 million program. Right. You, now, uh, we don't know yet, but uh, is it possible that they would also administer the $1.3 billion program? We don't know who's going to be administering that program. You know, given the, the hiccups over the last program, I would tend to think not. But with the funding itself, uh, maybe they'll be able to use part of the funding to do uh, administer. But it's it's a lot of money that needs to be administered. You know, compare. I mean, it's ten to twelve times the amount of money that the the state had trouble administering before. So, uh, 
you know, if I took out the, you know, the $30 I have in my pocket, I could easily administer it. But if I put out $1.3 billion, it's a, it's a, it's a big endeavor to, to, to get rid of that money. I don't believe you. Give me $30. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So, and then what about the one shot? We talked about the one shot a couple of times and, and some of our listeners may not understand what that is. One shot is an interest free loan from the, from the city. So basically the tenant applies, the city loans them the money to pay the rent and they don't have to pay interest and they have, they can get at least one a year. So they can get an interest-free loan from the city to pay their rent once a year. I I have a question actually, and this goes back to the hardship declaration form. Um, a lot of questions that I see from landlords, what is a hardship? <laughs> what is a hardship? What can a landlord do to validate a hardship? What can a landlord do to challenge a hardship, if at all? I have it in front of me. There's a box. There's box A and box B. And so the tenant has to say, I am experiencing financial hardship um, due to significant loss of household income, um, increase in necessary out-of-pocket expenses, childcare responsibilities, um, moving expenses and difficulties or other circumstances related to COVID pandemic that has negatively impacted their ability um, to obtain meaningful employment or that vacating the premises and moving into new permanent housing would pose a significant health risk to, to either themselves or someone in their family. And actually, I think there was a Zoom call yesterday that Lisa can speak to that she was on that call with the judges and the question was posed, uh, what, ha what happens if the uh, tenant is lying or the landlord believes the tenant is lying? And in fact, the, the tenant is not experiencing financial hardship, but they just checked the box. And the responses, and Lisa, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, was, well, after May, the landlord can bring it up to the court. But what does that do? Because the moratorium is extending till May anyway, so that really provides absolutely no relief to the landlord. Yeah. So in other words, what they're saying is all someone has to do for purposes of qualifying for this moratorium through May 1st is check a box. Yeah. Without any supporting documentation or any evidence or anything to substantiate uh, the allegation. So, you know, while some of the people, you know, Bill mentioned, and I think you mentioned that, look, indeed, some tenants are suffering hardship during this time, and I don't think anyone's questioning that, but there are going to be a good number, a high percentage of individuals who are going to take advantage of this and just check a box. So you mentioned like getting supporting documents, even before you get to that point of what documents are available for, you know, someone to look at for like a, a property owner to look at the the definition itself is very unclear. Like, I think one of the one of the options is a significant income loss or increase in expense. So what's an increase in expense? What if I have to swipe an extra Metro card now? Is that an increase in expense? What if I was before I was making 200 thousand dollars but now i only make one hundred ninety thousand dollars. is that a significant loss and i i mean I, it sounds like the answer is there is no definition which adds to the difficulty of even challenging a hardship if there was even a process to challenge it but there's no process to challenge it anyway so there's no process to challenge it and there's no definition as to what's significant. So for what's significant for you is maybe not significant for me. And basically, if a tenant says they have a hardship, you have to go with it and you're stayed until May. On Monday, 
at Cuomo's briefing, he was asked a question by a CBS reporter about tenants who didn't pay rent prior to COVID and um, about the tenant declaration hardship. Did you hear that? did, actually. And um, the question really uh, mixed up two separate issues. The, the first, the question was, what happens to pre-COVID cases? Are they stayed? And the second question was, and what happens if the tenant is not being forthright uh, in context of the hardship declaration? So, you know, Cuomo gave an answer of the law is the law and that the cases should move forward, at least as it relates to the pre-COVID cases. But the present moratorium, um, at least through f- uh, the end of February, applies to all cases, pre or post-COVID. Uh, so nothing is moving in that regard. And as it relates to the hardship declaration, uh, while I certainly share um, uh, Governor Cuomo's sentiments that people should not be uh, taking advantage of that, um, there's a difference between should not be and what's actually transpiring. And what's actually transpiring is a good number of individuals are checking off a box and the landlord, unfortunately, has absolutely no recourse in the present moment. So there's no proof of the hardship. None has to be provided. By the tenant. That's correct. And also, contrary to what Cuomo said, um, hardship declarations are being sent by the court to every single case that's pending in the system, besides for HP cases, which is um, for repairs. So that really goes against what Cuomo said at his press conference, because the courts the courts are stayed through the end of February so that all the hardship declarations could be mailed out. So that should also be noted. Stayed. What does stayed mean when something is stayed? Meaning they essentially closed down housing court until February 27th or February 28th. And and Lisa just raised a side point, which I think is interesting. She said, except for HP cases. HP cases are housing part cases commenced by tenants who seek to have the landlords complete certain repairs. Now, I find it interesting at least from a constitutional perspective, how the courts can be closed as to landlords who seek to collect their money, but they're open for tenants who want the conditions to be repaired. So the landlords have to go ahead and complete their repairs, despite the fact that they're not receiving any monies from the tenant. So, you know, the constitutional question is, well, how can the courts be closed to one group and yet open to another group? Well, I guess what you do is you take the cue from the mayor who deems certain things important and other things not so important. So it's really, you know, it depends on whose ox is being gored. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah, I I was talking to a small property owner and she has a non-payment case and I guess in her case, um, the tenant filed a uh, harassment claim against her, and that got on the calendar um, fairly quickly. Um, so, so it's kind of. I mean, I, I understand if there's someone being harassed, that obviously it could be a safety issue and it needs to be addressed. But sometimes the harassment can go the other way, you know. Um, and but I don't believe that if the landlord feels like they're being harassed, whether it's physical or verbal or whatever, I don't. I don't believe there's anything they can. There's any similar process that they can take. There's not, right? There's really not. Uh, we, we get these questions from time to time from clients, and there again, you have nuisance cases that you can bring, but harassment claims by landlords. 
over the course of 35, 40 years here, we've brought two of those cases. And we had to bring them in Supreme Court. They're egregious. They were really, really egregious conduct. I can't get into the facts, but that there are things that just the tenant was, you know, falsifying documents and pretending to be the landlord and, you know, things, things of that nature. Those are the types of things that aren't necessarily harassment. We kind of couched it as harassment. I think one we couched as abuse of process. Um, but those are rare occurrences and they're expensive litigation to, to bring. A lot of landlords are asking me, and I definitely do not know the answer is, is this all co- constitutional? It's interesting because I, I had these questions posed to me at the very beginning of the pandemic, and I actually bounced them off my son, who's also a lawyer, and he quickly pointed me to a Supreme Court matter. I forget the name of the case. He, he rattled it off right away. He's closer to law school than, than I am. Um, and they said, basically, the, these governors can do these things uh, because of the emergency uh, that's being held. That we haven't, So we haven't got to the point yet of unconstitutionality. When they start forgiving rent, that's when you're going to see the big fight, uh, if if that happens, yeah. which is probably why it hasn't happened yet. Although I'm sure you know we, there are movements afoot uh, to actually cancel rent. I think that the thing that the landlords are really most concerned about, and they feel like they're being picked on, which they really are, is that there doesn't seem to be an end to this. There seems to be a continual adjustment to the goalpost being moved. And it's it's maddening, it's frustrating, and it's and it's really worrisome because landlords are in a hole right now, and they don't seem to have the shovel at least to be able. They want to do the digging; they're ready to do it, but they haven't been given the shovel. So, um, so it's a concern for landlords, and they keep moving, they keep changing. I mean, my, my head is swimming when we see the next iteration of moratorium, followed by the rules of the the judge followed by the notifications from the marshals. And you have to read all these things as an attorney, and it's what we're, we're signed on to do. But my head is swimming. I can only imagine non-lawyers having to go through all this and get an understanding um, as to what it is. So that really is the big concern that, you know, we're supposed, we're being told by the federal government, you know, we do see a light at the end of the tunnel, but New York State just keeps on adding on to the landlord's burdens. And that's really, that's really the problem here. I hear the same thing that people say, yeah, March 1st, I mean, May 1st, but they don't believe it. Prolonged eviction moratorium almost becomes canceled rent. It's a backdoor. Yeah. Well, that's what, what, right. When, when eventually get to the point where it's, it's like not being, just not expecting the rent to come. That's really what it is. And, you know, when you're doing these changes over time too, you're, you're paralyzed because you're you're trying to decide. It's almost like a period of deflation. You know, with deflation, uh, you know, you you don't go out and buy things because you think that you know ten ten weeks from now it's going to cost a lot less. I'll just wait ten weeks. Everybody waits, and then nobody does anything. So it's the same thing here, where the landlord says, "Well, maybe I'll wait a little. I should wait a little bit longer because you know the 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 thing it'll expire, and then I'll be able to do my case." And then the legislature comes in and says, "Not nah, two more months." Um, so, you know, you become paralyzed until all of a sudden the tenant owes 12 months worth of rent and you just feel as a landlord, you're not going to be able to get it. That's really distressing. As you say, Jim, by kicking the can down the road and continually moving the goalpost, this just continues to exacerbate the situation for property owners. And the only solution is going to be some kind of major relief from the state 
from the money that's coming from this federal government in order to make landlords whole again so that they can continue to maintain their buildings and pay their expenses. Well, Nativ, Jim, Lisa, and my illustrious co-host, Joanna, uh, our time is drawing to a close. And I just, I just want to ask one more question. And uh, actually, all three of you have answered this question once before, but you answered it in a different time. So it might be, it might be a different answer. Uh, and then, Lisa, this will be the first time you're answering this question. If you woke up tomorrow and something in the real estate world had changed, what do you wish that would be? Joanna? I personally, I mean, I am, it's so, I'm so mentally exhausted. I think something people forget also is that landlords are people too. And we have our same personal, same family, COVID, you know, we go through the same thing. And then on top of that, we often have, you know, we often take on whatever our tenants are dealing with because we're trying to help them solve their problems too. And just like mentally, I personally i'm so exhausted i don't i just don't i just know it's it's not this this is awful and i i think everyone is can't wait until it's it's over so if i can just further that point um i think everyone here sitting around this table wishes that if we woke up tomorrow covid is just gone or everyone's vaccinated one or the other uh but uh realistically speaking and i think the work joanna is doing is is leads this fight is that if we can change the narrative and have everyone realize that we are all part of the same ecosystem and we're, we're all very much intertwined and the problems one of us one group faces impacts upon the other and so to single out one group so where you have all these mayoral candidates right now who's saying you know, we're not going to take any money from landlords groups or developers because now we're going to equate them essentially with drug dealers, right? Because who do you not take money from except, you know, gangsters and drug dealers and, you know, the dreads of, of society. And now we're going to lump in landlords with that. Like, how did we come to that? You know, what, what, and, and I think it's dangerous. I think it really um, doesn't, show any appreciation that landlords provide the housing stock for the city. And not every landlord, in fact, very few are these large conglomerates. Most of them are like the people in your organization. These are moms and pops who are working, and this is the expenses they need to survive. And so if, if, it, if the narrative can be changed such that everyone realizes that everyone feeds off of the other, and that the problems one face will necessarily impact upon the other, and to the same extent the solutions that we provide uh, should be focused on one that will impact everyone as, a, as opposed to just one group, that would be a change for the, for the good. Lisa? I would just want to wake up to even just a small mechanism to just help my clients a little bit. I'm glad that we're starting these plenaries because it'll help us get them their money I'm on the phone all day with clients, and I basically feel like the Grim Reaper, and, and it's hard. Jim? What I'd like to see, some of these companies come back to New York. I'd like to see, it doesn't have to be 100%. It can only be 50% of the occupancy load. These companies have to have plans in place already, but they've decided to just kick their own cans down the road and not come back. 
Bring back 25% of your people, 50% of your people. Start having them come back into the city and start spending money for lunch, for cab rides, things of that nature. Uh, the local Target in the suburbs, they've got plenty of money now. The local grocery store, they've got plenty of money. Amazon, Jeff Bezos has enough money. We don't have to start ordering. Come back and buy things in the city. That's the way this city's going to get going. JP Diamond, he's a great guy. He said, you know, his bank is back. They're back in business, you know, in New York. They're, they're bringing people back. But they, they can't do it alone. We're here. We're operating under our limits with our protection. Um, the governor had said as of July, you could, you could be able to, to do this. So come back and revitalize the city because if the city remains stagnant, New York's not coming back. And those businesses are not coming back. And news to the rest of the suburbs around where a lot of people are holed up right now, they're only around because New York City is around. The suburbs themselves are satellites of the city. If you don't have New York and a vibrant New York, those suburbs will be gone. So come on back, businesses. It's, it's, time, it's time to do it. Well, all of you, that was great. Uh, that was fantastic. I really enjoyed the back and forth and the conversation. And uh, Realty Speak listeners... I'm sure you enjoyed it as well, and you got a lot of information, and I just want to give each one a Jim first because he's got to take off, and then Lisa, and then Nativ and Joanna. If people want to get in touch with you, how, how do they get in touch with you? Phone number here is uh, 212-869-5030. The firm is Cooker, Marino, Winyarski, and Bittens. Um, you can reach me by email at jmarino at cookermarino.com. Thanks, Jim, and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Bill. I really enjoyed it. It was great. Good to have you again. Lisa? And my email address is lselzer, L-S-E-L-Z-E-R, at cookermarino.com. And Nativ? And Winyarski, that's W-I-N-I-A-R-S-K-Y, at cookermarino.com. And I think uh, you can also use that phone number that Jim provided, and I think what you'll find is – we try to make, to make ourselves, all of us here, uh, available for everyone at all hours of the day, every day. And we realize this is a difficult time for landlords, and we are here to help alleviate that burden to the extent that we can. Thank you. Joanna? If people want to get in touch with me or Spony, they can email us at info at spony.org. Um, they can also visit our website, www.spony.org. All right. Well, Jim already said his goodbyes. Thank you to the other three of you for being here. Thank you, Bill. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being my co-host, Joanna. Thanks, Bill. All that'll be in the show notes, uh, Realty Speak fans, so you didn't have to write it down. And there you have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the NYC-focused podcast please subscribe. You can do so on the website. Just go to the podcast page on the website and there is an opt-in option on the top of the page. Or search for Realty Speak on your favorite podcast app, like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for an iPhone. Find it, open it, hit subscribe, and you're in. And please help Realty Speak grow by sharing the show with others. From the website player, just click share and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, if you'd like to talk about purchasing, selling, or financing investment real estate, access past episodes, or just chat, you can contact me directly via the website at billwidener.com. That's B-I-L-L. 
W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And everybody, stay safe, stay healthy. Let's get through this and move on. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time. Thank <laughs> you.